This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Judges chapter 6. Last week we began with um, this story. Uh, the children of Israel had, had 40 years of peace um, during this period of time in the Judges. And the period of time in the Judges, if you're with us maybe for the first time in this series, uh, Judges is a roller coaster ride for the nation of Israel. They fall away from God, they fall into idolatry, they disobey God, they go into immorality as a nation because they're worshiping gods whose worship is about immorality. We'll see that maybe a little bit this morning. And then they cry out to God because God allows them to be taken over and oppressed by pagan nations and, that live around them, and they allow the, the people of Israel to be conquered. So they cry out to God in repentance. And God hears their cry, and God sends a judge a military leader to come among them and raise up an army and defeat the pagans, the Canaanites and the Philistines and the Amalekites and the Midianites and all these nations that had not yet been driven out as God had commanded them to do, drive them out, and they hadn't done that. So we get to this place after the story of, of Barak and Deborah and 40 years of peace, and then they fall, they go back down to the bottom of the roller coaster. And it says, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of God in verse 1. So what does God do? God says, you have to learn another lesson. So God allows the Midianites to come in and to overwhelm them. And every time the harvest season came, because the Midianites were nomadic people, they weren't interested in their houses they weren't interested in their barns. They, were, they lived in tents. So they would sweep in during the harvest season and rob them of all their harvest, all their grain. They would rob them of their livestock and leave them with nothing. And it says after seven years, they were in deep poverty in Israel. In fact, it says during that time, it got so that they understood what the Midianites were doing coming in during the harvest times, that they would, the people of Israel would run and hide in the caves and the crevices in the land. That's where they were hiding out. They were scared to death. And what's really, really sad about this is, I told you this 200 years earlier in Numbers chapter 31, they had defeated the Midianites. They, they, they picked them clean. But 200 years now, they've rebounded, built up their nation again. And now a nation that once had been defeated by Israel is defeating them over and over and over. Now, they cry out to God, but this time what's different is they're not crying out to God in repentance. They're not crying out to God saying, we're sorry, God, we have gone after these other gods and these idols. We're, 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 we've done sin in your eyes. They're not crying out to that. They're crying out saying, God, we just can't take this pounding year after year after year. We're not sorry for what we've done. We're sorry for the results of it. And so God does not send them a deliverer right away. He sent them a prophet. A prophet, someone who declares the word of God. And the prophet, we don't even know who the prophet was. The name is not given to us. But the prophet said, here's the deal. Here's what God says. I brought you up out of Egypt. I've done all these amazing things for you and given you this land. But you're suffering like you are today because you would not obey. And that was it. That was the word of God. Then we come upon the story where we are today. 
the story of a man by the name of Gideon. He's one of my favorite guys in the Bible because he's so much like so many of us. Gideon was the youngest in his family, and his family was the weakest in his family, in his tribal family there in Israel. He said, we're, we're the least significant. We are the family on the other side of the tracks. We're the family that doesn't have much. And the Bible picks up in the story of, with Gideon in chapter 6 and finds him um, threshing his grain, as poor people did with a stick. The wealthier people would, would thresh it with ox, oxen. And he didn't have any own that kind of thing. And so um, uh, he was down threshing the, his, his grain down in the, in the wine vat where they would put the grapes and crush the grapes. It was down, it was a hole in the ground is what it was. And he was down in there beating his grain with a stick because he was what? Afraid of the Midianites. It was harvest time and he knew they'd come looking. Well, if I get down here where they can't see me, maybe they won't steal what I have. So he's down there. And while he's down there beating this grain with his stick, a stranger walks up and has a seat. Man, he's carrying a staff and and Gideon doesn't know him, but they go into this conversation. And the stranger who the Bible identifies to us as the angel of the Lord, and we went into great lengths last Sunday to identify him further as Christ, the Son of God, in a pre-incarnate appearance on the earth. Here's a note. I didn't give you this word last week. He was a Christophany, all right, if you want to jot that one down. A pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. That means before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, made numerous appearances with the people of Israel to do some things. And this was one of them. And he says, Gideon, you mighty warrior, you. And Gideon probably thought, man, he's making fun of me. I'm down here scared to death, beating this stuff with a stick, hoping that the, Mal the uh, Midianites won't show up. And he's calling me a mighty warrior. God's with you. God's got a plan for you. God's going to use you to defeat the Midianites. In fact, you're going to go and you're going to do battle against them and you're going to defeat the, the Midianites as if they were one man. Well, the Bible had already told us earlier in chapter 6 that they were like a swarm of locusts. It wasn't just one man. It was a, a great number. And they had camels in their military, which the Israelites, they hadn't come around yet. They're high-tech, these Midianites with camels. We can't defeat them. And over again... The angel of the Lord says, listen, I've told you, you're stronger than you think you are. You've got a strength within you that you don't even know. And so we ended the story with that, talking about this man Gideon and, and, and looking at him and, and how he was, he was doubting the word of the angel of the Lord. And the last thing he said, the Lord said to him, you'll strike Midian down as if he were one man. Have you ever had an inkling in your mind, in your heart, and we all have, at least I have, an inkling in your mind about something. You say, this is what I think God wants me to do. Have you ever had that kind of thing? I think God wants me to do this or that or the other. But I'm not sure if it's something God wants me to do or if it's just something I want to do. I'm not sure if this is what God wants me to do or not. You ever been through that experience? I have on many occasions. So you've said maybe something to God like what Gideon is about to say. You said to God, so God, show me. Prove to me that this desire that I have, that I think may be your will, I want you to prove it to me somehow. That's what Gideon does. Look with me. Let me, uh, let, me, let me read verse 17. Then he said, Gideon said to him, to the angel of the Lord, to Christ, if I have found favor in your sight, 
Give me a sign that you are speaking with me. Please do not leave this place until I return to you. Let me bring my gift and set it before you. I want you to show me a sign. The Jewish people are a, for whatever reason, and they always have been, a a show-me kind of people, prove-it-to-me kind of people. Paul, who was a Jew, wrote 1 Corinthians 1.22, for the Jews ask for signs. The Jews are always saying, show me that this is God. Show me something miraculous. Do something that... There's no other explanation for. Give me a sign, meaning do something impossible to prove who you are. So that's how the Jewish people were during Jesus' ministry, too. They they didn't want to accept that he was the Son of God, that he was God with them, visible among them during his ministry. Matthew 12, Matthew writes, And some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, to Jesus' teacher, We want to see a sign from you. And he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. Let's stop right there. If you've ever said to God, do something to prove it to me, what does Jesus say about you? You are evil and adulterous. Why? He gives the answer here in the rest of the scripture. But no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. What was Jesus saying to them? You're going to get one sign, and that one sign is my resurrection. So here we are 2,000 years past the resurrection, and we sometimes will say to God, okay, God, I think maybe this is what you to do, want me to do, but I want you to prove it. And God wants to look at it, and Jesus wants to look and say, do what? I have already proven to you who I am when I raised from the dead on Easter Sunday morning. I don't need to prove anything more to you. Do you get that? Aren't we stubborn? We're We're not so much different from the Israelites. You may not be Jewish in your heritage, but a lot of times we think like Jewish people, don't we? We're always asking for signs. Matthew 61, again, the Pharisees and Sadducees approached and as a test, asked him to show them a sign from heaven, and Jesus replied to them, if you go ahead and read that passage, was the same, and it's simply this, the only sign I'm going to give you is a resurrection. And he's talking to Jewish people, and he said that, here's why he said that, because the whole, he said, get your Bible out, fellas, the whole Old Testament points to me. The whole Old Testament is about me coming, and if you're not willing to accept my word, the Bible as proof of who I am, you're not going to accept the sign. You're not. You're going to come up with some reason why that wasn't the thing. So don't ask for a sign from God. Instead, accept his word. Accept that Jesus died and then he rose from the dead. That's the gospel. That's the sign that we have today. Well, being, as, being hospitable as they were in the Middle East, Gideon said, I want you to stay here. And Gideon went out and he fixed a meal for this stranger. Verse 19. Gideon went and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from a half bushel of flour. And he placed the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot. And he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. They were hospitable people. That's just, when a stranger shows up, you feed them. And that's how they, uh, that's how they, they were in that culture in those days, which isn't a bad thing necessarily. I think it's a good thing. Um, the word here for gift, lest you think it means he's offering a sacrifice to the Lord. Again, 
he's not convinced this is the Lord. And the word gift here isn't the word for a sacrificial gift. It's not a sacrifice in the sense of payment for his sin. But he was hoping that, that if the man accepted his gift of food, then he'll show him a sign. And it wasn't a small meal. He prepared a goat. Now, I've never sat down and eaten a goat. But, but I can look at a goat, and I, I know there's, there's plenty of meat on that thing, you know. It wasn't a little bit of food, a goat. Uh, he prepared, uh, he took flour and made unleavened bread from the flour, a half bushel of flour. That's about 22 and a half pounds of flour. You can make lots of biscuits with that. 22 and a half pounds of flour, can't you, Ellen? Calculate that in your mind. 497 biscuits, you know. <laughs> That's a lot of little cakes of unleavened bread. And by the way, don't miss the significance of things in these stories. They, it was unleavened bread, meaning there had been no yeast added to the bread. So it, it, it did not rise. It stayed flat. But what's significant about that, and some of you know this, leaven or yeast in the Bible is always a symbol of what? Sin. It's always a symbol of sin. That's why when, when they, they, the Jews um, uh, practiced the, the Passover and so forth, they, they used unleavened bread. And it goes back to the story of in Egypt when they didn't have time for the yeast to rise. They had to hurry up and make this meal the night before they left. So they didn't put yeast in it. They didn't have time for the bread to, to rise. There was no time uh, in that story. This was prepared in a hurry. He didn't put any yeast in it. So this may be an indication that Gideon's heart, even though he was unsure of the true identity of this, this man, this, who's identified to us as the angel of the Lord, he's unsure of this. His, his heart still was pure. He wanted to know, he really did want to know if the Lord was speaking to him. So he brings the food out and brings it to him, and, and, but, but the Lord wasn't hungry. He didn't want a meal to eat. He wanted Gideon to lead his people. That's why he came. So Gideon first wanted a sign. And again, you ever try to, like Gideon's doing, you ever try to make a deal with the Lord? I'll bring you a meal and make you feel good if you'll do something for me. I know you want me to do this, but how about if I do that instead? You ever make a deal with God? At this point, Gideon didn't realize who this man was again, who it was talking to him. And then the Lord did something only God could do. Look what happens. Verse 20, the angel of God said to him, take the meat with the unleavened bread and put it on the stone and pour the broth on it. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord extended the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire came up from the rock and consumed the meat. And the unleavened bread, just burn it up. It was gone. And then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. The rock here, put it on that rock right there. The rock became an altar for the offering that was presented to the Lord. And Gideon got the sign he was hoping for as he reached out with a staff and touched it and fire came up. And it reminds me of the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Consumed it all. This man truly was God. Well, what do you do with that? What did Gideon do with that? Gideon thought, once he saw that and realized who this traveler was that he had been talking to, who he prepared the meal for, Gideon thought, I'm going to die. 
right here and now. I'm a dead man as I speak. In verse 22, when Gideon realized that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, oh no, Lord God. I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace to you. Don't be afraid, for you will not die. He thought he was going to die. He thought it was all over with. But the Lord, who it says had suddenly after this fire came and devoured the meal up and was gone, and Gideon looked around and the Lord was gone. He wasn't there present with him and he couldn't see him. But he thought he was going to die because, he, as he said, I've seen the face of God. But the Lord was still present because he continues a conversation with Gideon. Instead of fear, Gideon, I want you to have peace. You're not going to die. It's okay. So Gideon responds with worship. Verse 24, so Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. It is in Ophrah of the Abiaz rites until this day, writes the author of the book of Judges. He responds with worship. First, he worshiped why? Because he realized he wasn't going to be struck dead by God. That's a good reason to worship God. <laughs> I get to live. He's grateful and happy to be alive, but secondly, he's worshiping why? Because he has been with who? The Lord. He's been with the Lord face to face. And this deserves an altar. This deserves a place of worship. And he gave that altar a name, the Lord is peace. And to verify it, this author who wrote Judges would later add to the story. And the altar's still here. The altar's still here. Now Gideon's met God. He knows he's met God. Now Gideon knows without any doubt that God has a plan for his life. He wouldn't be threshing wheat while hiding in a hole in the ground anymore. He would be leading Israel as their general against this, this great enemy, and he would lead them to defeat the Midianites. A lot, of, a lot has changed in one day for Gideon since he woke up. Now he believes. And that tells us this next point. Write this down in your notes. Belief leads to obedience. What happens when I believe? The natural outcome of belief is obedience. One of the things that happens in a person's heart when he or she believes in Christ as their own Savior, as many of you, maybe most of you have done, you put your faith and trust in Jesus and Him alone. One of the things that happens is that you begin to believe Jesus. For example, when you trust Christ as Savior, first thing you're told to do as a believer in Jesus Christ is to follow him in believer's baptism like we saw here last Sunday. That's, that's the, you know, he told his disciples, go and make disciples baptizing them. And you read the book of Acts and everybody who believes followed that belief really pretty much immediately, didn't they? With baptism. That's the first thing that we're told to do in obedience to Christ. That's the first step of obedience for a new Christian. And some might ask, okay, well, I've believed. I know I'm saved. I know I've been given new life. I know I'm going to heaven when I die. Why do I need to do this? Why do I need to get in front of a people, a group of people, most of whom are strangers, and humiliate myself by getting soaking wet in front of a crowd of people? You know what the answer is? 
Because Jesus said so? That's a simple answer. But the answer is because Jesus said so, because Jesus wants you to take this first step of professing your faith in a public way. But don't confuse obedience with baptism, or excuse me, obedience with salvation. Just because you're baptized doesn't give you eternal life. Your eternal life comes from what? Faith in Christ, from believing. Salvation comes through faith or believing, and obedience allows that faith to produce the fruit of that faith. So never think that by doing all the right things, let me say this slowly, never think that because you might do all the right things that you're okay with God. Even still, you and I can be disobedient children of God, can't we? We can come up out of the waters of baptism. First step of obedience, and in five minutes we've done something to disobey God. We've lost our temper, we've had an impure thought, We've done something that's not right. Can we not? We can. Sometimes it's simple and easy to obey the Lord, and other times it's more difficult. But God's got big plans for Gideon. He's going to be Israel's deliverer. He's going to set them free from the oppression of the Midianites. But there's got to be some action on his part first. There had to be, if you will, a test of obedience. And that's kind of how God works. He loves to give, give us these tests to see if we're really serious about our faith. He was commanded by God to purify his father's house from idolatry and then show his surrender to God by offering a costly sacrifice to God. And the Lord gave the orders to Gideon that night after this story with the, with the meal burning up and the worship of God God says, okay, now here's what I want you to do about your newfound faith. Here's, here's how I want you to obey me. He gave the orders right after that. Look at me at verse 25. On that very night, the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull and a second bull, seven years old, then tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Build a well-constructed altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his male servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it in the daytime, he did it at night. When the men of the city got up in the morning, they found Baal's altar torn down. Baal, again, is false god. They found it torn down, the Asherah pole beside it cut down, and the second bull offered up on the altar that had been built. And they said to each other, Who did this? And after they made a thorough investigation, they found out. One of those ten servants said, I know. <laughs> they did a thorough investigation and found out it was Gideon, the son of Joash, who did it. Then the men of the city said to Joash, to Gideon's dad, bring out your son. He must die because he tore down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, let me paraphrase. He said, really? Would you plead Baal's case for him? Would you save him? Think about this, guys. If he's really God, does he need you to come to his defense? 
That's what he's saying. Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by mourning. If he is, if Baal is a god, let him plead his own case because someone tore down his altar. And that day, Gideon's father called him, changed his name, called him Jerubbaal, saying, let Baal plead his case with him because he tore down his altar. Now, we learn some things about Gideon here. First of all, he grew up, apparently grew up in the home of an idolater, didn't he? Because his father had this altar to Baal, and right beside it, he had this Asherah pole. His father was one of that Jewish generation who had enjoyed those 40 years of peace under Deborah and Barak, yet had done evil in the sight of the Lord by turning to false gods. And Gideon had grown up in a home where God had been abandoned. His father actually had two idols set up, one of Baal, the other this Asherah pole. Asherah pole is dedicated to the female goddess of fertility, Astarte. And Baal was the Canaanite sun god and their chief god. And Gideon's first act of obedience to the Lord, I want you to go and tear down your dad's stuff. That which your dad values more than anything else, his altar to these false gods. I want you to go and tear down your dad's stuff, and then I want you to take your dad's livestock and offer it as a sacrifice. Well, Gideon's one of those people who believes it's easier to ask forgiveness than it is permission. So he does it at night while nobody sees, you know. I want you to do this. Gideon's first act of obedience to the Lord was to destroy his dad's altars to these two principal gods of the Canaanite people. The translation, I I just read the, the Holman Christian Standard Study Bible, and I'm reading from, and it makes the story a bit confusing. Again, let me read verse 25. Take your father's young bull and a second bull seven years old. And then you read the rest of the story, and it only talks about one bull. Did you catch that? It never mentions two bulls. It just mentions the second bull. Did he, did he say two, or did he just say one? What, what is it? And, and it sounds a little bit confusing, like it might be two bulls, a young one and one seven years old, but the rest of the story, again, only mentions the second bull, and why is that? Because if there were two, God would have told them what to do with both of them, wouldn't he? Well, I've got this other bull, God. What, what, what do I do with that? The answer is there is only one bull. Are you saying the Bible's wrong? No. I'm not saying that at all. But other translations give us a clearer understanding of what it says. For example, the NIV says this, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. There was just one bull. That bull was seven years old. It was the second bull in age in his father's herd, meaning there was a bull that his dad had that was somewhat older than this one. Eight, nine, we don't know. You take the second one that's seven years old. Well, why not take the older bull? Why not take the firstborn? If you really, you know, firstborn means a lot in Israeli culture and in their, in their faith, firstborn. Why not take the firstborn? And I, and I believe the answer is very simply this. Most likely that firstborn bull had been dedicated to Baal. And God would not accept it as a sacrifice to him. But more interesting, I think, is the age of this second bull. How old was it to be? Seven years. How long had the Midianites been terrorizing Israel? Somebody tell me. Seven years. 
You take the second bull that was born, by the way, at the same time the Midianites first showed up. For seven years, God had given Israel into the hands of the Midianites because of their sin of adultery. And now Gideon is to kill the seven-year-old bull and offer it to God on a new altar to wipe away Israel's sin. Gideon has to destroy his father's altar to Baal in the Asherah pole which was the altar apparently for the whole community because everybody got mad about it, what, not just dad. Everybody got mad about it. And what they had done was they took this Asherah pole, which is nothing but, a, but a, a tree trunk with all the limbs cut off of it, so it's just a pole like a telephone pole, and they just took that and chopped it up, and they used that to be the firewood for the sacrifice. Some wanted, some want to be, and I've read, you know, re, you read some different, people, commentators, and so forth, they're critical of Gideon because he did this at night. They said he did it at night because he was scared. But it does say he was afraid to tear it all down and, and build an altar in, to God in the daytime for all to see. That's why he did it at night. But the point is this. God told him that evening, do this, and he did it when? Right away. Now, not his fault everybody's asleep, you know what I mean? He did it right away. The point is he obeyed. He obeyed God. The Bible doesn't say that God said, wait till tomorrow and do this. He did it right away. In fact, since God gave him to do this order at night, and it seems he did it at night, it seems to me his obedience was immediate, which is what God expects out of us. Just because we obey the Lord, by the way, doesn't mean there's no, near, no, no fear of what other people think. I'm going to obey God. I'll have no fear. Let, let me just let you know, sometimes when you obey God, you are afraid. I mean, you're going to be sometimes. Gideon was. It's simply, and that's why we pray to God for courage. It simply means that our faith in the Lord and his promises to be with us overcome those fears. So the next morning, the men in the town I'm sure including his dad, came out and saw what had happened. They were not happy. Their religion has been dismantled. And when they figured out it was Gideon who did the destruction, they demanded that he be put to death. And what does that tell us about, about a culture, whether a community or a nation or a church that turns away from God? What might happen to that man or that woman who says, no, I'm going to stand up and do what's right? There's a risk in obedience, Christian. You need to understand that. But Joash, Gideon's dad, stops the mob from killing him. And he just uses some common sense with them to stop them. He says, listen, guys, if Baal really is God, does he need your help? Think about that. A lot of, a lot of times we think God needs our help, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to church. God needs my help, so I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. God does not need our help. I need God's help. That's what it is. Does God really need your help? If he's really God, let him take care of Gideon. But it seems his son's obedience to the Lord, apparently what I can see if you read between the lines, it kind of looks like Gideon's obedience to God brought some conviction to dad, who had lived during those 40 years of peace. Point is in your notes, there's only room for one God in my life. If I bring in other gods, Christian, if we bring in other gods, 
into our lives, then my worship of the true God, Jesus Christ, ends with that worship of the other God. Jesus said this, you cannot serve two masters. Can't be done. And he will not share the hearts of his people with anyone or anything else. And we might say, well, I'm good. I don't have any altars. I don't have any idols. I don't have any poles that set up outside my house that I worship. I'm good. And probably you don't. But that's a misunderstanding of what an idol is. What's an idol? An idol is anything or anyone who takes first place in my life above Christ. Anything, anyone. When you say anything, we can take all the material things and say, no, that's not. But when we say anyone, you've got, like me, got a bunch of grandparents here. It means my grandkids. I can't put them before Christ. I can't. Anything, anyone. Another way to ask that is, what or who do I live for? That's how you find out who your God is. That will tell you who or what has first place. The Bible tells us that when we believe, for example, when we believe in Jesus Christ, it gives us new life. Well, what's new about it? One thing that's new is there is a desire now to be obedient to him. Baptism, as we said, is one of those acts of obedience. It doesn't make anybody a Christian, but it's the first way we show those who see us that we're changed. We're willing to go through this in public to say, I now believe in Christ. He's given me new life. Another act of obedience is when we do away with the things that we had worshipped prior to coming to Christ. It shouldn't take long before we realize there is no room in my life for Christ and these other gods, whatever they may be. Those things that we live for and we put up on a high shelf and our hearts have to be brought down. Now Christ has to become our God. He has to become our king. And it's not always easy to remove other gods. Some of you can think back to when you first became Christians and the things that you, God said you've got to do away with that, that can't be your gods anymore. The changes that happened in your life. It's not always easy to remove the other gods, especially if those things have been costly, or especially if everybody I know knows how important this is to me, knows this is the most valued treasure of my life. But if they are objects of our devotion and they're above the Lord, they're idols, whether they might be other people or material things. Our God, your God, is described at least eight times in the Old Testament as being jealous of the devotion of his people. At least eight times in the Old Testament, God is a jealous God of the devotion of his people. After all, he had repeatedly come to their rescue. He demonstrated in powerful ways his relationship to them. So when they fell in love with these foreign, fake gods, Baal, Asherah, when they they fell in love with these foreign fake gods that took their devotion to the Lord away, and he was jealous. And Christian, he gives us that same kind of love. But what's different about us from the Old Testament Israelites is that he has demonstrated his love to us by one thing. What did Paul say? God demonstrated his love love 
to us and that while we were yet sinners, what did God do? Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love to us by putting our sin on his son and allowing him to die for us. So when you and I who are Christians turn to other things in our lives, and we do, we turn to other people and we place them in a higher place in our hearts. God, listen, he has every right to be jealous. So as we close this morning, I want to ask all of us if there's something or someone that has replaced Christ on the throne of our hearts. And I want us to take a few moments right now to do that. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? And in the quiet of the moment, ask yourself this question. Is there something in my life that is making God jealous? In the quietness of this moment, maybe right now what you need to do today is tear down the altars that you've built And by confession to God, build a new altar to Christ and put him first, put him at the top in your heart. So God, I'm not so different from Gideon, I found out. And um, sometimes I don't act in obedience. I don't have the faith I ought to have and I want you to prove things to me. So first of all, God, I want to say thank you for proving who you are and your love by giving your son to die on the cross and then raising him from the dead. Don't need any other sign. Father, for those of us this morning who maybe we have erected other gods in our lives, it could be be time. We've taken away from God and said, my time is my own. We've taken our lives away from you that way. I pray that we would get get those things right, not be afraid, but allow you to change us. And Lord, as people see the change in our lives and they wonder about us and maybe they want to accuse us of something, may we, God, just respond uh, with uh, how we, we just want to be obedient to you in our lives. And that's what matters most. So bless us this week. As we live, may we live for you. May we glorify your name in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And God bless you. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world. 